The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Hitting the BCMA Target in Multiple Myeloma, Insights on CAR-T Therapy and Innovative Antibody Options. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FNM 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Okay, so today... Um You're going to have two panelists. That's myself, Tom Martin, from the University of uh, California, San Francisco, and my friend and colleague, Dr. Karina Patel from MD Anderson in in Houston. All right, so I'll start with just a few baseline um, slides, and that is, so, you know, BCMA has now opened up a fourth pillar of therapy in multiple myeloma. So we've had three pillars of therapy in my mind, proteasome inhibitors, immunomodulatory drugs, and CD38 antibodies. And those have actually certainly expanded um, our, our survival in patients with multiple myeloma, and certainly the combinations have allowed us to have numerous uh, therapies for patients with relapse and refractory disease. But BCMA is now going to bring us to a new forefront with the, with the fourth pillar. We do have another pillar, obviously, alkylators that we use a lot in, in here in the audience. We use a lot of alkylator-based therapy, especially with transplant, and we also use a lot of steroids. But with all of those, we now have quite a few options. And the, the real, um, I think, important thing for us is to know that in the next five to ten years, what we really want to find out is what is the best sequence of all of those therapies. So BCMA is really a great target. It's, it's lineage-specific. It begins its expression at the germinal B cell. And it's expressed on the mature plasma cell and with higher expression on nearly all malignant plasma cells. You know, signaling is, is also implicated in disease um, progression and drug resistance. And perhaps by blocking BCMA, there may be some therapeutic of doing that. Now, the BCMA as a target now has led to multiple improvements in relapse refractory myeloma. We've had four agents approved in, um, in this space. Belantamab mafodotin, unfortunately a checkered pass. We'll talk briefly about that. Two CAR T-cells, um, captagene Vaclusil and Siltacaptagene Autolusil, and also a bispecific, our first bispecific approved to Clistamab about four months ago. And I think we're all just getting our hands wet on using this as a standard of care option. So now in this space, all of these drugs with BCMA targeted therapy is being, they're being used and tested in the far right, I say the far right of myeloma therapy. When patients have relapse refractory disease, when they're so-called triple class refractory or penta, uh, penta drug refractory, these are patients that really have very limited options, correct? And so if we look at the mammoth data on the, uh, on the graph on the left, you see that those patients that have triple class refractory disease or penta drug refractory disease really have poor survivals, really generally less than 12 months. This was corroborated on the right in a presentation at ASH this year from a Canadian group looking at P, uh, patients who are CD38 refractory, and in fact, again, the overall survival being less than a year, and really upwards of more than a third of patients that do not go on to a next line of therapy in that, that scenario. Um, so what are we going to do today? We have a few goals. We're going to try to provide the, uh, all the evidence that we have up to date. Now, it would take us 10 hours to provide all the evidence. We're going to do snippets of the evidence of what we think are important for you to know, both in the CAR T-cell world and also by specific world. Um, we're going to share some of uh, some guidance in terms of how to, how to implement these therapeutics. I always tell myeloma is a disease of treatment that's based on art, 
sometimes more than it is data. And so, you know, everybody can be their own artist. You're going to use these data that you learned today to hopefully develop your easel and paint your picture at home at your own institution. We also want to equip you with the skills to manage safety concerns that are associated with these BCM and targeted therapeutics. The most important part, there are safety concerns that we have not seen in other therapeutics that you really need to know when we do therapy for with BCMA targeted, whether it's CARs or bi-specifics. And with that as an introduction, I'm going to bring up Dr. Patel. She's going to talk about aiming for remission with BCMA CAR T-cell therapy. Karine, it's all you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to go through all of CAR-T in about 18 minutes, but the first half is data that most people here probably know, so I'll go through it sort of as an introduction, and then focus a little bit more on the newer studies that have come out, and some being presented here at Tandem. So in, you know, the NCCN guidelines, we do have four different BCMA therapies that are approved right now, um, greater than four prior lines of therapy, um, and the two that are CAR-T are Ida-Captagene Biglucil and, and Silta-Captagene um, Autolucil. So Idacel was the first BCMA CAR-T construct that was approved. Um, it's an anti-BCMA CFV um, and then 4-1-BB. And the overall response rates for these patients um, has been, you know, compared to anything we had before this, um, pretty phenomenal. So again, overall response rates of 73% and about 85% for those who had 450 million cells. So this is the original KARMA trial, um, the pivotal trial for approval, and these were triple-class refractory patients. So obviously the, the introduction that Tom just gave um, on, you know, patients with, with triple-class refractory disease are usually pretty um, uh, dismal otherwise. So again, overall response rate of 73%. The median time to response, one month, which is pretty new for us as well. Um, and then, you know, for the this trial, the big thing was that dose did matter. So the higher dose you got, the better response. Um, so about 450 million cells is what we aim for in um, when our patients are getting standard of care. Um, and again, the deeper response. So those patients that got a CR, a stringent CR, which is about 33, or sorry, uh, 39% for the patients who had 450 million cells, um, usually means that they're going to do better uh, by PFS. So again, overall, according to the target dose on the left, um, basically the the blue line is the 450 million cells, and those patients' uh, median PFS was 12.1 months. Um, and then if you look at prior lines of therapy, um, they didn't really see a big difference between three lines versus greater than four. Um, but again, the, the patient populations were a little bit different. Um, but the median PFS was 20 months in patients who had that CR, stringent CR. Our biomarkers that are helping us decide what to do with these patients, because CAR-T has not been a cure yet for our myeloma patients, unfortunately. It's, it's really improved survival, PFS, quality of life. However, we need biomarkers to know who's going to do really well and who do we need to watch out for. And I think um, the next generation flow versus you know, next generation sequencing, if you have MRD that is negative at 12 months, sustained MRD undetectability, um, patients do much, much better than if they are not sustained or if they don't reach MRD negativity. Um, and then so coming to the real-world data. So this was one of the first studies that's been published. This was um, part of a U.S. consortium for um, cell therapy and included 11 different centers around the U.S. Um, and, and it had about 150-something patients that actually got infused. So 77% of these patients wouldn't have met karma criteria, mostly from 
um, cytopenias, renal failure, renal insufficiency, cardiomyopathy, lots of different reasons, prior BCMA therapy, which um, the, the trials originally didn't allow for. And as you can see, um, you know, in terms of PFS, we've actually seen um, similar PFS rates for all patients was about 8.8 months, um, and survival um, has been actually very similar as well. So most of these patients have done really well. Looking at creatinine clearance, um, there is another study done by uh, Dr. Sadana, um, at a poster at ASH, that we have to adjust fludarabine, just like with everything else, but we've actually seen responses that were very similar to the KARMA data. And again, PFS was 0 to 2, So, and we had a couple of patients that were PFS 3, so different than the trial. So then coming to the next, um, Siltacel was the next CAR-T that got approved. Um, again, the difference here is there's two binding domains with two different epitopes of SCFV. Um, again, 41B, 41BB is still the COSTIM uh, uh, domain. And CARTITUDE 1 was, again, the, the relapse refractory patient population greater than or equal to three lines of therapy in triple class exposed. Oops. So we all know the 98% response rate, n- never seen anything like this in, you know, even in upfront trials for the most part, um, 82.5% stringent CR, um, which the, de- the depth of response was pretty um, phenomenal. And, um, of course, it's being looked at in earlier lines of therapy now, too. And so the, actually, I think um, Dr. Martin was also one of the people that presented some of this, but Dr. Usmani presented this at ASCO 2022. But um, CARTITUDE 1, there was a follow-up at two years after the last patient was infused and really just shows these phenomenal responses. Um, you know, th- there could be tails, especially for patients who are MRD negative greater than 12 months. So we're hoping that maybe those are the patients that we can eventually call cured. Um, you know, again, we don't have enough data to say that yet, but our goal is to pr- bring everybody up there. Um, and then again, MRD negativity. You know, if you got MRD negativity that was sustained despite having high-risk cytogenetics, ISS status, or treatment history, you did really well. So that that's sort of where a lot of our um, clinical judgment that we use to say if someone's going to do well or not might not answer the question for us, but the MRD piece has been really, really instrumental. I will add that, we, you know, for people with extramedullary disease, making sure we're looking at their PET scans is still important, too, um, since the bone marrow won't tell us everything. So then the question about sequencing. So this is really important because because we can't cure myeloma, because there's access issues, you know, what do we do when a patient's in front of us and I can't get them, let's say, a CAR T-cell or a bispecific or vice versa, whatever's happening, um, is it okay for us to give another bi- a BCMA and then and hopefully in the future treat them with the, a different treatment? So if you had prior cellular therapy, um, if you had prior BCMA treatment before um, the Silta cell on trial, um, Adam Cohen uh, presented this data recently that the response rates, you know, you see are lower. So instead of the 98% we saw, it's in the 60s, 60%, 57% for bispecifics versus 61 for ADCs. That's still double what we see for Selenexor or daratumumab. So even though it's lower, this is still probably as a single agent higher than anything else we have in the BCMA refractory patients now. Um, the one thing that, you know, I think we need more long-term follow-up, but the PFS is a little bit shorter. Again, probably better than anything else we have available, but 5.3 months for a prior bispecific, 9.5 PFS for prior ADC. Um, so shorter than if you didn't have a prior BCMA therapy. Um, and then uh, one of our fellows at MD Anderson, Dr. Ferrari, actually presented this at ASH on our real-world um, data set for IDASEL. So not looking at trial patients now, in the real world, what is happening? I mean, a lot of these patients did have prior BCMA therapy. 
So the response rates were actually still pretty good. Now, if you had prior ADC, 68%, so lower than that 85% or so. If you had a prior bispecific, 86%. These patients, most of them had not had the, the full dose of bispecifics, though, just to put that in context. These were patients who were on clinical trials, some of them on phase one dose escalation studies. And then if you got a CAR-T, it was 100% response rate. Small numbers, of course, but I think enough data to say we need to look at this further. And when you look at the PFS, it was the same thing, that the response rates looked good, but the PFS for prior ADC um, and prior bispecifics was still pretty short, um, you know, 3.93 months, 2.83 months. These patients have had more lines of therapy, so it could be the disease as well, but again, just something we need to kind of learn more about. So the general principles um, for effective delivery of CAR-T therapy, you know, again, the dosing is a little bit different for the two, um, and I think it's because the constructs are different and their expansion is different. When we think about CRS with IDASEL, we see it day one, day two. With Siltocell, we usually see it um, a little bit later, day five to 12. So there's some things that we do differently, but really um, the referral to the healthcare facility um, should happen pretty quickly. Um, so if we're getting more and more slots now, which is great, but I need to see those patients at least one line before they're actually eligible for the CAR-T. We don't use, you know, filters. Um, That's a big difference. Um, You know, we we do avoid prophylactic use of dexamethasone, which is different than other um, for stem cell transplant, for instance, et cetera. But um, we try to avoid dexamethasone so for, for my patients, even during bridging, uh, because we use a lot of DEX for myeloma treatment, we try to stop it at least one to two weeks before the apheresis if we can. Um, and I look at their ALC counts and, and try to change therapy if I need to to make sure their ALC count goes up. And the AE events to monitor for all of these therapies, I, I will say that I think CRS and um, ICANS, but they're there. But I would say that compared to lymphoma CAR-T, they're probably one step down. And then Tom will talk about bispecifics, where it's probably one step down from the um, myeloma CAR-T. And, um, you know, again, this the LD chemo, the biggest difference we've seen is we, we have had shortages of uh, fludarabine on and off. So um, hopefully there'll be data soon that will tell us if that happens again, what to use instead. Um, and renal function is the biggest thing with myeloma patients in the rural world to make sure you're um, looking at that. And so here's the CRS and ICANS. So again, high rates um, of 95%, 84%, but this is grade one, two. So for us, this is much easier than lymphoma. Um, and most of these patients are treated with acetaminophen or uh, tocilizumab, and it resolves. Um, a few patients with grade two and really not very many with grade three or four. Um, again, means onset of um, median onset, very different for the two products. So seven days for siltocell and one for idosol. Um, so most of my patients for idosol are admitted just so we can, you know, monitor that and treat it um, quickly and then get them out of the hospital versus siltocell. We've actually been trying to do it outpatient um, for this reason and admit when their CRS is starting to occur. ICANs we don't really see very much of, which is good. Um, infections are the big thing um, that I think Tom is going to talk about with bispecifics as well. When these patients are really relapsed refractory, they're already at a high risk of infections. And with CAR T, I'll say it's in the first three to six months that we see this. Um, there are some other, you know, prolonged cytopenias, et cetera, that again in relapsed refractory patients we see. Um, there are a few patients we've actually given stem cells to that we had saved from their prior auto. Um, but for most patients, this is re- this resolves in the first month. And, and again, most patients by three to six months, they don't have any problems. Okay, so I'll spend the next seven minutes, eight minutes on earlier use of CAR-T therapy. Um, and what does that mean? Do we think it's better? 
So um, I got to present Karma 2A at ASH, and this was a group of patients that we consider high risk. They um, had had transplants. It was about 37 patients that had transplant um, in upfront therapy with their induction, but then relapsed within um, 18 months of their initial therapy start date uh, from their diagnosis, basically. And so we know that those patients biologically don't do very well. So then they all received Idacel um, as their next line of therapy. So they had not had um, a CD38 antibody. So 31 patients, uh, is a 31 patients total. Overall response was 83.8%. Um, see, the CR rates were 45.9%. And, um, you know, again, uh, the depth of response matters. So the 46% um, um, is probably what's driving the uh, PFS. Um, and again, the early deep clearance of tumor was seen in the patients who had that greater CR um, and those who actually had the sustained um, CR at two years. And there was less CRS um, and neurotoxicity than we saw with patients who had later lines. So again, um, maybe their disease was a little bit better controlled going into this, um, or was it because um, their T cells are, are different? We, we don't know, but um, we actually saw a little bit less severe toxicity. And then the presentation that I think Dr. Geralt is going to give here at Tandem on Karma 3, which is the first phase 3 randomized study of um, IDACEL versus standard of care. And again, the IDACEL is 150 to 450 million cells dosing. And for um, the standard of care, these were the available therapies for both U.S. and ex-U.S. Um, at the time. So DPD, DVD, IRD, KD, or EPD. And choice was up to us, but also depending on what the patient just had previously to try to make sure they get something that hopefully would actually work and that they're not refractory to. And those patients have had um, CD38 before. So again, a different patient population than Karma 2. So, you know, the New England Journal paper came out last week, and again, looking at the PFS for IDACEL, the response rate was 71% versus the standard regimens, 42%, and looking at PFS, median 13.3 months versus 4.4 months. So, you know, I think that this is low, 4.4 months in general, but this just tells us that the more refractory patients are even earlier, the, the, we're going to need better therapies. Um, so I think we can go into that discussion a little bit later, too. Um, and then CARTA 2-2, also in high-risk patients um, in earlier lines, looking at patients who had, so this group was actually patients who had transplant or didn't have transplant. So it's a different patient population, but still relapsed earlier than we would have expected within 12 months. Um, again, high risk, uh, high response rate, 100%, 19 patients. And then 90% remained progression-free at one year. And then just to mention that CARTITUDE 4 is the other randomized um, CAR-T trial of Siltacel versus PVD or DPD, um, that there was a press release that did show that there is a positive response, and hopefully we'll see more of that data in the near future. So really the take-homes here are, you know, patients with relapsed refractory myeloma progressing after four to five prior lines of therapy are good candidates for CAR-T. Our real-world data does show that patients that would have been considered too old or frail, our, our oldest patients are 84, um, that have gone through a 100% response rate for, for, you know, our older patients because their performance status is really good and we do look for comorbidities. Biggest thing, avoid alkylators, especially bendamustine. Um, that just kills the lymphocytes. But um, even high-dose cytoxan or the weekly cytoxan, if they're on for a long time, I mean high-dose steroids. Um, and then, again, start the process one line prior. Bridging can be an issue. So we, we talked um, very closely to the um, our colleagues to make sure we, we have bridging done. Sometimes it takes 
two cycles of bridging before we get the cells back. Um, so we, we want to make sure that bridging doesn't, that it keeps our myeloma controlled, but doesn't cause major toxicity. Um, and then high-risk patients, I think, are logical candidates for earlier lines of uh, treatment um, because it sh- hopefully will change their outcomes. But this population hopefully will go to standard risk as well because we know that patients who have um, standard risk usually do better than what, um, what, what our high-risk patients do. And then the, the big thing with car talks. Um, so when at 3 o'clock in the morning I'm getting paged for all the different lymph, you know, lymphoma and myeloma CAR-T patients that are getting CRS or ICANs, um, having a tool like this has been great to just plug in what's happening. The nurse tells me this is the fever, this is you know, what, what it is for oxygen, et cetera. And then I can you know, come up with um, what I need to do. Um, and it's taught all of us to, to figure it out faster. But there's lots of different tools. This is just the one we have at MD Anderson. So before we move on, before we ask the questions again, because we have some time, I'm going to ask Karina some questions. And so, Karina, you just showed um, you know, a blurb about CRS with the CARTOX tool, et cetera. I'm just curious, what is your platform for treating CRS? What do you do if somebody has grade 1 CRS or grade 2 CRS? How do you treat that at MD Anderson? Yeah, no, that's great. This is where the art comes in. So um, I know most other centers will probably treat grade one much faster than us. Um, we, we usually start with acetaminophen and supportive care. Now, if the fever curve just keeps going up, and that, if that patient had a lot of disease burden going in or they're frail or something that I'm worried about, I use Tosi much faster. Now, if they were fit and otherwise doing really, really well, I might wait till that three days of fever before doing it just to make them feel better or until they're really grade two um, CRS. So I think... Um, Again, we know that TOSI probably doesn't affect the outcomes, but again, the cost and does it increase risk of infection for some of our patients. So we're still trying to figure out that right population. But I know you, you guys do it a little differently. <laughs> that, that is great. And that's where, again, this is where the art of myeloma changes and where you guys have to develop your own platform and plan. So at UCSF, we're, CRS always happens at 2 in the morning. I tell everybody, it's 2 in the morning for CRS. And when that happens... There, there is no data that given to tocilizumab decreases their response rate. So we actually do tocilizumab with first fever. We wanted, to, we just want to turn it off right then and there. CRS does have a duration of two to four days, and so us, we, we do first first fever tocilizumab, and then if the fever persists, we do for a little, we do a little steroids. We throw on some dexamethasone, and then other agents if you continue to have that immune activating signal. All right, so I have another question for you because we, we have some time, and that is, so. The, the data with CARS is amazing, right? The very high response rates, very high PFS. Um, so is there any patient that you would prefer to use a bi-specific over a CAR, or would you always want a CAR if you had the, had the availability? If they're diseased, let me do a CAR, I would want a CAR. Um, and I will say, because I ask my patients, the ones that have a choice, um, I think that one and done is so big for relapse refractory patients that haven't had that break, um, and the quality of life piece is so important. But I think right now, the biggest issue is if I can't get that patient to that manufacturing slot, to the infusion, then, then we have to use something off the shelf to give them a shot. Great. Thank you very much. Dr. Patel, so now we're going to switch and talk a little bit about um, BCMA-targeted antibodies in relapse refractory multiple myeloma. Um, So Karina talked to you about the two CAR T-cell therapies. I'm going to just say a few things about belantamab, and then we'll we'll focus more on uh, bispecific T-cell redirecting antibodies. There's also, you know, another option that's available for everybody, and that's selenexor and dexamethasone. Um, we're not going to really talk about that in this in this session, but it's certainly an option, and we all use it um, sometimes either pre, post, 
bridging, et cetera. There's many places where you can, can use Selenex or indexamethasone. So the initial approval of belantamab mafodotin, a BCMA-targeted antibody drug conjugate, ADC, came from the DREAM-2 study. It was a phase 2 DREAM-2 study. And it was done in triple-class um, exposed patients. And the majority of the patients were refractory to CD38 antibodies. And the single agent at 2.5 milligrams per kilogram given IV every three weeks gave an overall response rate that was about 32, um, uh, 32% and a duration of response was about 11 months. So it was a very active agent. So with that, uh, a phase three for full approval by the FDA was developed, and that was initially the DREAM-3 study. And the DREAM-3 study data has now been released. This is a phase three study in relapse refractory multiple myeloma, similar patient population. 380 patients were involved, and patients were randomized two to one to belantamab mafodotin, a single agent, versus... Uh, pomalidomide and dexamethasone. And the statistics of the trial was to show that belantamab was better than POMDEX. Um, unfortunately, when the data all came in, it turned out that it was pretty much a wash. The PFS was 11 months with belantamab, and it was 7 months with POMDEX, with a hazard ratio of 1.03. So no difference. So statistically, there was not an advantage and it was not a superior result for belantamab mafodotin. And based on that, unfortunately, the FDA has taken belantamab off the market. Um, I think we've all had patients that really have benefited belantamab mafodotin, and we hope it actually will be back on the market at some point. They still have three more shots on goal. We have the DREAM 7, 8, and 9 trials, some in relapse refractory myeloma uh, in combination um, therapies, and then one in actually the newly diagnosed setting. So hopefully in the next year to two, uh, two years, we'll have some data that perhaps we'll have this drug back in our toolkit. So let's talk a little bit about bispecific T-cell engagers. Now, the original bispecific uh, therapy, um, it was a small molecule. It was two SCFVs attached by a flexible linker. It was a very small, and it was traditionally from Amgen, a bite, called a bite, B-I-T-E, molecule. And it, unfortunately, because it was a, such a small molecule, it had a very short half-life. It needed to be given by continuous infusion. And we did have a bite from Amgen tested in myeloma. And in fact, it was the first one that showed very significant activity in, multi, in relapse refractory disease. We all got very excited years ago. Since then, the therapeutics have really been changed to the right side of this slide where they now have more of an antibody structure where one FAB binds, anchors itself to the myeloma cell, the, F, the other FAB binds to the, um, basically to the immune cell, typically a T cell and binds to CD3. And there's an um, FC component that increases the half-life and allows us to give intermittent dosing. Now, there are more than 25 BCMA-targeted products currently under investigation. It's unbelievable. And they do differ. They differ by the way they bind to BCMA. Same thing with the cars. Some bind with two binding domains. Some bind with one. They bind to different epitopes on BCMA. And they also differ by the way they activate CD3. Some are low-activation uh, binders, some are high activation binders. High activation binders may be associated with higher CRS. But the truth of the matter is, is all, as all the data unfolds, we see very little clinical differences between these differences in binding domains for BCMA and for CD3. With very high response rates, 
in general in the whole class and, you know, not as severe CRS. We'll talk more about that in a second. Now, the first bi- BCMA bispecific that's been approved is teclistamab. And, the, you know, the benefit of this is now it's, it's an off-the-shelf drug, right? We don't need to manufacture the CAR T-cells. Um, and teclistamab was basically approved based on the Majestic 1 study. The recommended phase 2 dosing of it was 1.5 milligrams per kilogram given by subcutaneous injection Q-week, and it was basically administered at full dose after two step-up doses. And so the way we do it in practice today is a patient comes in, they get dose number one. Two to three days later, they get step-up dose number two. Two to three days later, they get the first full dose. They're monitored monitored for 48 hours, and then we can do all the dosing there um, after as an outpatient. Uh, we do hospitalize people at UCSF. Other centers are developing pathways to do this completely as an outpatient with other mechanisms for monitoring. But suffice it to say, this drug had significant activity. You'll see the overall response rate on the right. Um, with 165 patients treated, the overall response rate in this relapse refractory, a very heavily pretreated population, five prior lines of therapy of um, 63%. And 60% of the patients had VGPR or better. And in fact, 40% of the patients had complete responses. So high response rate, deep responses. And if we look at the duration of response, it was 18 months. And so durability also. This is, this is new, right? This is new in this patient population for us to have such um, active agents. In addition, we're able to see patients achieve MRD negativity. If you look at... Um, the patients who achieved a CR or better, about half of them achieved an MRD negative status. We've never had um, drugs um, short of CAR T cell therapy that could actually put a patient into MRD negativity in the truly refractory three, four, five prior lines of therapies. So these are ama- really amazing drugs. PFS, 11 months. Overall survival at the current time, 18 months. Now there are some practical points and there is um, some some toxicity from biospecifics. The reason they're, you know, monitored for the, for the step-up doses in the first full dose is because there is cytokine release syndrome or CRS. It actually is 72%, so a little bit lower than with CAR T-cells. It's almost all grade one and grade two. And I tell my staff, um, CRS with these also always happens at two in the morning. Um, so we get the calls, et cetera. But it's mini CRS with these. We really don't have to worry so much that they're going to go to the ICU. I don't think we've ever had, a, thankfully, knock on wood, a bispecific patient go to the ICU. It doesn't typically happen that they get very severe symptoms for their CRS. Usually lasts one to two days. We take the same um, strategy with bispecifics at UCSF, and this is where the art comes in, too. With the first fever, we give them a dose of tocilizumab to take away the fever. I, we do it for a couple reasons. One, these are older patients. And actually, the bi-specific age, I think, are, are going to be, the average age is going to end up being older than CARS. And we don't want them having fevers for a couple of days and then to have delirium and not be able to do the, the ice testing, et cetera. We want to turn off the fever right, right away. And there will be emerging data, and it'll hopefully it will be reported soon, that if you give them tocilizumab early on and step up dose one, if they need it, they actually are less likely to have a subsequent CRS um, event with step-up dose two or the full dose number one. So, so tocilizumab actually does work even in doses down the road that you're less likely to have recurrent CRS, which is kind of nice. On the right side of it, it's there, there is some neurotoxic, neuro, neurotoxicity. 
it's again a lot it's more mild than it is with CAR T cells you know 14.5% most of it was headache ICANN's really a small percentage 3% and it's almost all grade 1 and 2 it typically occurs together with CRS it occurs to the time when they have all these fevers that's why I'm a big proponent of trying to turn that off as soon as possible now there's there's quite a few. I could have chosen, you know, six other agents to present today, but there's a, there, these are all showing very high activities um, in patients with relapse refractory myeloma in the three or four or more prior lines of therapy. This is L-renatumab, um, and this is the Magnetism 1 study. All of these are dose escalation trials. Um, in this one, they tested a prime, priming dose before the full dose. They also tested a priming dose with pre-medications. And I think that the results are actually quite interesting. I'll show you more about that in a second. But in fact, if you take patients who receive this bispecific and we look at the, those that received what we think is an effective dose, 215 micrograms per kilogram or more, you had an overall response rate. 64%. It's almost always 60 plus percent in these biospecifics. It's pretty amazing. With, with many patients achieving a VGPR or better, 60% or more. And, and in this one, you know, 34% of the patients, 35% of the patients achieving a complete response. So very active, deep, and we'll see soon, hopefully, the durable remissions. Now these are data just looking at, um, in the blue, the patients that had the priming dose, and in the orange, priming dose plus pre-medications. And this looks like cytokine um, levels in blood. And you could see a big difference. And so priming plus pre-medications actually works quite well. The pre-medications are what you would expect, uh, acetaminophen, diphenhydramine, and, dex and dexamethasone. Now, um, here also sh it shows when you look at those in dose escalation that did not have priming versus those that just had priming, those that had priming plus pre-medications, the CRS incidence was the lowest, six, you know, six, two-thirds, 66.7%, and those that got both priming and pre-medications. Um, so... What about moving these also, like you, like you heard from Dr. Patel, moving these er, in earlier lines of therapy? So we heard data at ASH, um, and this was data looking at teclistamab in combination with daratumumab and lenalidomide in an earlier um, in line of therapy. These are in patients that have had one to three prior lines of therapy, including a PI and an uh, an, uh, immunomodulatory drug. And so this, the patients still had step-up dosing, full dose, and then had daratumumab and lenalidomide added to their dosing. And you can see here, when you do earlier lines of therapy, the response rate's not 60%. The response rate now goes up to 93.5% in one to three prior lines of therapy. So how does that compare? You know, I was an investigator on the Akima study, which was ESA, a CD38 plus carfilzomib index. And that is one of the studies in my mind that's had the highest, one of the highest overall response rates in this one to three prior lines of therapy, we had an overall response rate right around 85%. So this is 93.5%. Uh, so it seems like it compares favorably. We had about 40% CRs in the Ikema. Here, the CRs are 55%, a little bit higher. You know, these are, it's very hard to do cross-trial comparisons, but I just say this because these are really good data. This is pretty amazing in, the, um, in these, you know, earlier lines of therapy. And what's going to really define this is the safety signals. Is it going to be safe to give these therapies in earlier lines of patients without getting any real toxicity from CRS, any real toxicity from ICANS, and any toxicity from infections? We'll talk more about infections in a minute. 
Um, so there's also a Majestic 4 study that's planned. This is a basically post-induction, post-transplant, post-consolidation maintenance um, study. And the patients are going to be randomized at maintenance either to teclistimab and lenalidomide versus lenalidomide as, the, as standard therapy. And there's going to be a variety of assessments for MRD. And again, if we're going to start using these um, as, consoli- as maintenance post-frontline therapy, it's really, in my mind, going to be about safety. We already know with this strategy with lenalidomide, we get, based on determination, a 67-month PFS. Can we do better and can we do it uh, safely? So what we do know some reasons why patients don't respond so well to bispecific T-cell engagers. Having um, high-stage disease, having bulky disease, greater than 60% plasma cells in the bone marrow, and having extramedullary um, disease are signals that a, a single-agent bispecific um, may not be enough for these patients. I do think in some of those patients, CAR T-cells may be a better strategy at that point in time. But we also have to develop what combinations can these be used with to take care of these really high-risk patients that have EMD and have high-stage high stage disease and high-risk cytogenetics. And that, that's something that we'll learn, I think, in the next few years. We're also noticing now that we're seeing more... Um, resistance due to loss of BCMA expression, um, and we're losing the antigen on the cell surface. It's on chromosome 16. We're seeing biallelic loss of chromosome 16. It's often associated with 17P deletions, so we're seeing that in some patients. We are now, we have a, thankfully, we have now have a CLIA um, certified test at UCSF where we can send their bone marrows to the flow lab, and they will flow them for BCMA expression before and after the patients get a BCMA therapeutic. I think everybody who's going to be doing this needs to get assays like that going because especially if we're going to go from one BCMA to the next to the next, we really need to know is the target on the cell surface. It's going to help when we are able to to look at soluble BCMA levels. We still don't have a good assay for soluble BCMA, BCMA, but if BCMA is on the cell surface, you're going to have soluble BCMA in the serum. Okay. Another thing that, you know, we are worried about and concerned about is in the teclistimab data, 75% of the patients are getting infections. And although the infections happen a lot in the first month or two, and that a lot of that is driven by neutropenia and its CRS and um, our, our initial concerns of using growth factors in that early period of time. There are also infections that happen from month two to month three and month three to six and six to 12. And a lot of those are reactivation of a variety of viruses. And they also saw, um, you know, several cases of PJP. And so patients do need a uh, prophylaxis regimen for infectious disease when they go on these therapies. Our typical is everybody's on acyclovir, everybody's on PJP prophylaxis. Everybody starts IVIG soon after them starting the bispecific. We just started, we just decided last week that patients are going to get IVIG starting on cycle one, day 15. And they're going to continue that while they're on the, while they're on the bispecific. But there might, be, there might be an advantage to do intermittent dosing of these therapies. If we just keep hitting the target, there's two things that potentially could we, we could do. Is Number one, we might develop resistance, obviously, in the tumor. But we also might develop more exhaustion in the T cells if we keep activating and keep activating. And so one of the things people are thinking is maybe we do need to do intermittent exposure of, of uh, these drugs so that we can have less 
um, exhaustion of the T cells. So these are concepts that hopefully will will have more data to present in the next few years. Okay. Just, uh, just like Karina showed you, there's a, f- a few sequencing things. There's some retrospective reviews, one from Mount Sinai, looking at can you go from TCE to TCE? Can you go from CAR to TCE? And the answer, in fact, is yes. And you do see activation of T-cells. Uh, the orange curve are patients who've went from one BCMA to the, to the next, or one TCNA, TCE to a, the next, showing that that strategy is actually better than the black curve when you go from a BCMA-targeted therapy back to the other stuff that we have, a mix of CD38s, IMIDs, biospecifics, sorry, IMIDs, PIs, and, and alkylators. That doesn't work so well, you can tell, in the black, in the black curves. Um, there was a, a Majestic 1 had a cohort C looking at ticlistimab, and the bar graphs on the upper left, you see with the ADC, um, the exposed patients still had a really good response rate of 55%. CAR-T exposed, 53%. ADC or CAR-T overall was 52.5%. And on the right, the swim lane plot, some people are actually having fairly durable responses. Same thing with magnetism. They allowed some patients with prior BCMA. Um, it's pointed in the arrow on the upper left, but in fact, it was only 13 patients, but 7 out of 13, or half the patients, were able to respond and actually have some durability based on the, the swimmer's plot. Now, we do have some other targets, right? So these, the, the nice thing is that the BCMA was, is a pillar in my mind, but these pillars are going to be um, uh, much bigger because we're going to have other targets that we can go after. One is GPRC5D, and uh, the the bispecific antibody telketamab, which binds to GPRC5D on the plasma cell and also activates through CD3 is another very active bispecific. This is data that was presented by Ajay Chari at ASH showing that um, in heavily pretreated patient populations, the overall response rate from telketamab, either given at a weekly dosing of 400 micrograms per kilogram weekly or 800 every other week, is 73 and 74%. Pretty amazing, actually. Um, and we also have another one targeting um, FCRH5. And this is a drug called Savasamab uh, from, from Genentech. And the bottom right showing very high response rates, 58%, 55%. So pretty amazing overall response rates. So this is, you know, these are drugs now that we have uh, in our armamentarium. We have drugs that we can actually treat patients today. Um, I think we're in a minute we're going to open up to questions for everybody, so think about your questions. In terms of, you know, some of the concepts of patient and treat, uh, you know, patient selection and treatment selection with biospecifics, you know, Karina already alluded to this. Patients that are progressing fast and cannot actually wait for their slot to get harvested, lymphocytes harvested for CAR-T, you actually, I think, have to put those people on biospecifics right away. We have to control their myeloma. That's obviously the most important thing. Age is not a factor at all, in my mind, of biospecifics. I was on a call last week with a lot of um, people, and, and I told them, we have, I have a 98-year-old in, I have an 88-year-old, and they were asking me, isn't that too old for biospecific? Absolutely not. As long as they're fit and they're actually doing okay, these are drugs that you can use in the older population. And so age in biospecifics, in my mind, is, is, not, um, is not an issue whatsoever. The fitness, I do try to set, send more of my fit patients to CAR if they can get them. But in the less fit patients, I think can go on to biospecifics. In terms of infection management, I told you a little bit about our protocol. 
but we still don't know. And we're going to have some guidelines come out soon for infectious management of bispecifics. There's going to be a couple guidelines papers. And, you know, we're seeing CMV reactivation. We're seeing parvovirus reactivation. We're seeing activation of viruses that, you know, our other drugs, we really didn't see much of that. So we just have to be aware of it. The question really is going to be, how do we have to treat them? Is IVIG enough to treat them? And what else, you know, what else do we have to incorporate into our, our infectious disease algorithm? It's going to be really important, important for us to define those. Um, and then, you know, what else can we combine uh, by uh, the biospecifics with? Certainly imines. You're, you're already hearing data from lenalidomide. There's data with pomalidomide. There's also going to be data with cell mods hopefully coming down the road. Everybody's interested in combining cell mods with these because cell, cell mods have the most immune stimulation. And then hopefully doing treatment-defined periods of therapy where they get maybe the biospecific for 12 months and then they're off. Maybe they'll continue the cell mod or the imid for another year. And if they're MRD sustained, maybe we can give them a break from therapy. Just like CAR T-cell, that would really be the holy grail in my mind for biospecifics. All right, very good. And with that, we'll open up the floor to questions. If anybody has a question, you can come to the mic. We also have a bunch of cards that we'll, we'll, we'll uh, read off. Can, can you turn the microphones off at the table here? I mean, on at the table? Hello? Yep. Perfect. All right, so we have some, we have some questions. I'll, I'll start with the easy ones, Karina. So age and CAR-T, any issue with age and CAR-T? For the most part, no. I think, again, performance status and can they you know, get through and, and do um, fludarabine and lymphodepletion, then the no age limit. Ooh, I like we have a couple transplant questions. One, is CAR-T take away the need to do a tandem transplant? And is and then the role of second autotransplants in the modern era. Is there any role for second autotransplant? You want me to answer that? Okay. So You're from MD Anderson, <laughs> yes. Having been a You're more transplants than anybody. <laughs> so I think... For us, most of our patients, we, we all, there was only about 10% of patients we were doing a second auto for as we got some of these novel therapies. And now, with even more novel therapies with BCMA, um, most of our patients, we use a second auto if their counts are really low or post-CAR-T, but they're in good shape and we want to give, you know, wait till the next, next big thing comes through. That's sort of where we use it. Um, we don't use much tandem uh, transplant um, at MD Anderson either. So I think um, for now, I, I don't think CAR-T replaces transplant yet, but hopefully trials like CAR-T Cartitude 6 that are looking at that in the future will, will help us decide. At the microphone. Hello, Laurent Garderet from Paris. Do you have any experience with T-cell engagers and renal insufficiency, like less than uh, 30 milliliter per minute of creatine so. clearances? I can say I have three patients right now, two on dialysis, one with the grade, probably, um, you know, GFR of like 10, getting it, and their first week has been fantastic. Um, I will tell you long term. I will say that a couple of those patients had more neutropenia already with other therapies. So we, we're, the prophylaxis we're giving them is much more. And, and our ID um, colleagues are fantastic. So we're thinking about you know possibly fungal infections because of their HD catheter. Um, so we're doing a lot of extra prophylaxis for them. But I'll let you know um, you know maybe a couple months from now. So, so I'll answer that too because I do also have a dialysis patient that's doing really well. And that's one of the reasons that I do target people to um, a bispecific is the, where their creatinine clearance is. If it's less than 30, then I say, let's just, let's just go with the bispecific. And, and it's been successful, actually, in that regard, yes, w- without much tumor lysis. Thank you. Just one comment. 
of course, we are all very excited with the combinations, with um, imids or whatever, cell modes, and, and also with daratumumab, but there was a signal last week, if I'm correct, with a fixed dose of uh, teclistamab plus daratumumab with an increased death. You, you, I'm sure you're aware of that. Right. Yeah, so, the, so the, to use them together, the CD38 antibody might actually take care of some of the CD38 positive Tregs in the bone marrow, so some of the immunosuppressive microenvironment. So daratumumab not used as a, you know, trying to target the myeloma cell, but actually to target the CD38 expressing T cells in the marrow and B cells in the marrow, the immunosuppressive microenvironment. And so I do think that there's a possibility. I, I will say that what we're going to, what's the important component of that, which we really need to know more data about, is does that change the infectious profile? And so I am a little nervous about the two together for a long period of time because of the infectious disease profile. And I think we're going to have data over time that suggests that maybe we don't do that for so long. All right, so I got a question from Jack Aiello. Um, and I have to always answer Jack Aiello's questions. I don't know if you know anybody knows Jack, but he's, he is the leader of the Bay Area Myeloma Support Group, and he's taken so many patients through myeloma He's at every meeting I'm at, and he's the, he's the most knowledgeable person I know in multiple myeloma. His question is, since UCSF uses TOSI at the first signs of CRS, what do you think about using TOSI prophylactically seen in Sevastamab trial? That's a great question, Jack, as usual. And that is, and I asked on, on this call I was on last week if anybody started, it says anybody started to use TOSI as prophylaxis. Nobody said yes yet, but I do think that that's something that's going to be tested because, yes, I think it's a good you know, if we can prevent people from needing to go into the hospital because they have very little risk of CRS, I think it's worthwhile testing. Do you, have you done it at all? So I'm having trouble getting TOSI approved as outpatient for standard of care. So I think we'll need trials like Sevastamab to show that it works so that then I can actually do it. But yeah, I think there's a potential. All right. So a couple for you. Was the PFS in Karma 3 expected to be better than 13.4 months since the study was earlier lines of therapy? Good question. That's a great question. So before before any of the studies, I would say yes. Um, we, we, I was hoping for a cure for, for you know, BCMA bispecifics move, or CAR-T moving them for up earlier would hopefully cure some of our patients, and, and we're not seeing that. But if you look at that, you know, the, the control arm, um, these patients are overall very resistant in general. Now, these patients have had DARA, so using, you know, these different options, we, we don't have clear historical data to say what 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 do we expect for these patients. Um, I will say the patients I've put on this trial, which were multiple patients that had ultra-high risk, high risk, because that was the most novel thing I had, they've done really well compared to what I know they would have done. So I think we need more subset analyses to see, you know, what this what the signal really is. But compared to what we have available, I do think it was a phenomenal result. Um, uh, I sort of estimated that this was what it would be. All right. So bridging therapy, what do you use? And then what about bendamustine for LD therapy? Yeah, so I think bendamustine has been used in a couple of different centers when we were low on fludarabine on and off. Um, so we'll have some of that data in the near future on responses and results um, versus other regimens we've done. Um, I think it, it, especially for certain patient populations, it might be better, but I think we just need more data. Um, everything's been done with FC. Bridging, that's really important. Um, again, you know, there have been patients where we know that if your myeloma is controlled or at least going down on the way to CAR-T, you're going to do much better in terms of response, in terms of toxicity, et cetera. 
but you don't want to overdo it with bridging where patients end up with worse infections because now we've given them, you know, cytopenias even before they went into CAR-T, and that's happened with a couple of my patients where they got worse infections after because of that. So we're trying to find that medium. We use whatever we can to, again, make sure they don't get toxicity with infections mostly right before CAR-T, but making sure their myeloma um, stays controlled going in. And then another one just in terms of using non-BCMA-targeted activating agents as a bridge. What do you think about that? I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> the day it's I a great question, that. and yes, we all want to do that, actually. You know, we want to collect their cells, give them whatever, telketamab, sevastamab, for a month or two months while we're waiting for the cells to, to be manufactured, and then give them the car, hopefully with minimal residual disease, and they'll have exactly. a longer PFS. That would be awesome. Okay, um, another one, Just I just have two more, and then we're all set. You guys have asked great questions. Do BCMA-targeted car antibodies bind to different epitopes at the BCMA molecule, um, and can they be synergistic? So the cars and the bites, do they bind to a different epitope, and can you use them together? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know all the specific ones for all, like, the 35 different kinds that are being um, um, evaluated right now, but they are. There are different epitopes. Um, for instance, Delta has two. Um, and so I, I do think that there could be a way to um, help improve. And, and some of the data from Canada, Nazar, right, uh, Bayless, where we are seeing some patients with point uh, mutations, et cetera, and different epitopes of BCMA um, would help us with the resistance maybe. And then long-term neurotoxicity? With Siltacel, anything to yeah, say? Yeah, sorry, I didn't mention that. So I know on the trial it was 9%, you know, um, that initially had this um, delayed neurotoxicity. Um, I have not seen it yet in our patients. Um, you know, hopefully we'll have some more real-world data to, to talk about that. Um, it is something that we have our neuro team monitoring our patients up to day 100 in case we have any symptoms that resemble that, um, and we try to intervene quickly. But, again, I haven't had to deal with that in the real-world population, which I was a, a little bit afraid of before. Um, and then the last question, so we do, it's about infections. And one, and, and, uh, somebody asked, because I said cycle one, day 15, we use IVIG. Is, does insurance give us pushback? Um, and what about if they have a high, high level of immunoglobulin at that point in time? So yes, there's, I don't want to say that we're rogue. We're going rogue at UCSF. But that said, most of the patients already actually have, you know, hypogammoglobulinemia at that point in time often from their prior therapy. But if they had an IgG that was, you know, 4,000 or so, we wouldn't, we wouldn't potentially give it on day, day, you know, cycle one, day 15, if their IgG was still high. As you guys know, the metabolism of uh, immunoglobulin is based on the level. So if the level's real high, the body metabolizes it faster. So if you give IVIG with a high level, then you're just going to chew it up really fast. Basically, it doesn't really work. So that's why the M protein goes down really slow over time is because you metabolize less when it's low. That's why you get more bang for your buck if you wait till it gets lower. Um, but very important to watch closely for signs of infection. Any fevers, signs of infection, you know, you do have to do what I'd say is an exhaustive workup in my mind. This isn't just, okay, you give them, you know, you give them a, zith- a Z-pack and tell them, okay, we'll see you next week. We actually do CMV, you know, PCRs. We do adenoviral uh, PCRs. We do basically parvovirus PCRs, et cetera. And so the, the, the take-home message for me for this is these are a new therapy that we're just learning on all the infectious diseases that can occur with them, and just be very careful when you're doing that. Last thoughts from you? Yeah, no, I think it's really exciting, but the infectious piece in these relapse refractory patients is so, so important. So even if you think it's CRS, just make sure it's not an infection, too. And with that, thank you so much for coming to our session. Thanks for all the questions. 
This activity is certified by the Medical College of Wisconsin. This activity is co-provided with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FNM 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC.